Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 12. Today we're going to be discussing the justified use of force. This is something that's been in the news a lot of, in a lot of cases. There have been a lot of current events, obviously, ever since George Floyd, and we're going to be getting into those things. But before we do, we're going to mention just a few things to the audience. I know some of you are surprised that there is an audience besides you, but, but trust me, you're not the only one. The only one surprised or the only one in the audience? Both. Both. <laughs> no, so we, we've we've done a lot of episodes now, and and a good chunk of those episodes have been based on timely things. You know, there are a lot of current events that we've wanted to to discuss and talk about. But we we foresee in the future that there will be some time where we can talk about things that we actually want to talk about. And so we just wanted to extend the offer out there to those who are listening to let us know what you are interested in and what you think we should discuss. And we would be more than happy to take a look at it. And if there's a time or a place where we can, we'll find an opportunity to talk about it. So what you can do is you can, there's a number of ways you can, you can contact us. You can leave a comment in the Podbean app. You can go to our website and you can you can actually from there you we've got our email address listed there, which is rethinking politics podcast at gmail.com. You can send us an email. You can go to our Facebook page at Rethinking Politics Podcast and and message us or email us through the Facebook app. Any of those options are fantastic and we'll be able to respond to those. So leave a comment, send us an email. Let us know what you think we should talk about. Whether it be a long question, something that would take an entire episode to address, or something short that would just take a few words, any questions? We'd, we'd love to hear from you guys. And with that, we're going to turn to some of the events that are happening in Kenosha specifically. Before we get into the, the details of what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse in the, the protests just recently, um, we want to discuss some of the principles around it and some of the ideas and get into get us into a position where we can think about it clearly and frame the discussion in a way that that we can judge it on its own merits rather than come into it with some kind of political spin and which is which has become increasingly important ever since the death of George Floyd you know we have as as Dana said there's been a lot of focus and a lot of emphasis on specifically police violence, but also cases of non-police violence. And and there's been a lot of focus, there's been a lot of media attention nationwide. Now, that focus has been less on the use of force and more on other issues. You know, the primary one obviously has been has been race and racism and that as a cause for the violence and as something that that has has influenced whether or not the violence would even occur right and these are the issues that are being brought up and discussed on a regular basis and as as this has gone on over these months things have become more and more politicized where now it's not even just a question of racism but it's actually become a question of pure pol- party politics where where how people feel about any particular shooting or instance of violence in many ways comes down on party lines that the republicans are on one side and the democrats are on the other side in so many of these cases and and our 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 views on 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 party politics you know aside there's a problem with that. And the problem is that as soon as you start running down party lines and deciding who's guilty and who's innocent before often, before people have even heard the facts, then it quickly becomes clear that the facts and the truth no longer matter. We're no longer talking about the facts. We're no longer talking about the truth. We're talking about something else. And so that's what this podcast is about is we want to talk about the facts. We want to talk about not just the facts, but about how to analyze those facts, not on a political scale, but on a scale of actual justice, because that's what I think everyone wants 
is justice. They want, you know, everyone wants the good guys to win and the bad guys to lose. And we understand that, but it needs to be about right and wrong, not about us versus them. Right. You'll have people who who interpret this. I mean, to a degree, obviously, if you have different political principles, you're going to interpret these events differently and you might have disagreements on how, on on whether a certain case is justified or not. But what's odd is that people are often attributing it directly to to things like people are people's interpretation are not on starting with the political principles. They're starting with how this is going to affect the election mm-hmm. and working their way back yeah. to the specifics of the case and in not consulting principles at any point in the process. It's a it's a it's a decision by bias and by utilitarianism at best. No, it's a great way of putting it, Dan, that it's not just that people are disagreeing. Everyone disagrees with everyone else at some point, and that's just part of being human. And and disagreement is is a normal, natural part of that. As long as we're actually disagreeing with each other instead of talking over each other. So we want to break it down and look at 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 force and violence and when they are justified and when they are not. And after we've looked at that, we'll be able to look at some of these cases and hopefully glean some things from them. So what we're going to begin with is we're going to look at some theoretical examples that are going to be intuitive, examples that we think pretty much everyone will agree on. And then we're going to try and explore the principles that these help us identify so that we can then apply those principles that we that most or almost everybody will agree on intuitively, principles that are basically self-evident, to actual complex examples and see where that takes us. See if that can help us see a little more clearly the and interpret current events a little better. So to do that, we're going to do a throwback to our state of nature example. I know woot, woot. I know everyone loves to hear more about Dan and I as we as we fish and collect berries. Intrepid hunter gatherers. <laughs> you know, and, and we've never brought this up before, but but the state of nature is rough because I hate fish. I don't know why when I made this example, I chose myself as a fisherman, but I have nothing but regret for that decision. <laughs> the amount of fish I've had to eat, oh my goodness. I mean, even with the berries I trade for, it's still terrible. Mm-hmm. So, and again, a state of nature concept as we're talking about it is we're just wiping away civilization. We're wiping away a lot of the complexities of life to look at a theoretical example of of us in a simple time where you can just look at this one thing and not be distracted by the politics, not be distracted by the other things. Uh, Which I've clearly isn't working people... as I'm getting distracted by the fish. But continue. <laughs> the that you were the theoretical fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I the theoretical fisherman? Um, uh, I was just going to say that a lot of people object to state of nature because they go, this isn't real. It's like, that's that's the benefit, mm-hmm. right? The benefit of this is that, is that this – if we're accurately portraying human nature and things that people can relate to and understand, then it's a useful way of thinking about things without having to experience yeah, them. A way, a way to highlight principles by getting rid of all the baggage. Right. Anyways, so in this state of nature example with me and Dan, obviously there are many instances when we're going to interact. As we've seen before in our other discussions, as we trade, as we, as we just interact because we're bored. So some of those interactions are going to involve force. And so the first example is the most simple when it comes to force. Dan becomes jealous of my incredible fishing skills and tries to kill me. And (laughs) in order to stop him, I end up having to hurt him. You know, I end up having to use physical violence in order to stop him from trying to kill me. That is obviously a use of force and violence on my part, but it is also justified and clearly justified, as Dan said, it's self-evident that it's justified in order to protect me from his actions. There's a very small group in the world who would disagree called pacifists. So that, that's the most simple example. Our next example is a little bit more complicated. Dan is being an absolute pain in the butt. Every time we get together, he won't stop trying to get me to join his MLM. 
And every time I say, listen, Dan, I don't want to join your MLM because there's only the two of us. So there's no one I can recruit. So it just means I'm going to give you my stuff. For those who are familiar with MLMs, that joke will be hilarious. <laughs> Anyways, so he, he, he keeps pestering me. And so I beat him up just like I did before, except this time he's not actually hurting me. He's just being difficult. Obviously, this is an unjust use of force on my part. Next example. It makes me think of it makes me think of the little kids that I have two little boys and I'm constantly like, like he said, like, why did you hit him? He said something annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, look, this is not not a good way to run your life. Imagine that applied on a large scale. (laughs) You're work one day and you say something, your boss is just like you and just takes you just smacks you in the face yeah if that that were justification we'd never get anything done where i work the number (laughs) of annoying things that are said (laughs) be a remarkably violent and unproductive world and that's uh, obviously just unjust so another example now in this scenario there's there's three people there's me my brother and then dan dan tries to steal my brother's fish He also happens to be a fisherman. It runs in the family. And I use force to stop him. Now, this becomes significantly more nuanced, right? Because now Dan is not using violence, physical violence, to harm me or my brother, our physical persons. But he's using force to take something of ours. Now, some people would argue that because he's just stealing, He's not really using violence against us. But, and this is where it becomes nuanced, everything that you have, and this is again talking in this, in this hypothetical world, all these fish that I have, these fish that my brother have, we have used our time and our resources, our energy, our, our skills to collect those fish. And so those fish are not only our possessions, but are actually an extension of our life because we've used our life, our time, our energy to collect those fish. And so when Dan steals those fish, he's actually hurting my brother. So when I use force to stop him, I'm doing it because I'm trying to stop him from hurting my brother, even though it's it's not the exact same as punching him in the face. I think a lot of people would agree that hey, if if you if you steal all the clothes I own, that's going to hurt me more than if you just punched me in the face. You know what I mean? That's going to affect yeah. me more in negative ways and and is a direct impact on on me. Right. And and people like if you think about it this way, I could if I'm going to steal from Brad right and take his stuff I could instead simply force him to work for me and take his stuff, right? I could enslave him. Mm-hmm. And then the stuff that he makes would go directly to me, right? But what if I didn't have to do that? It's a lot of work to watch over Brad all day. I mean, the dude's a handful. Let's be honest. Sends <laughs> way too much time thinking about these philosophical questions to remain a, to, uh, to not be – he would not be content. Let's put it that way. If I were <laughs> – not that anyone is really. If So if I tried to enslave Brad, that would obviously have complications for me. It'd be way easier for me if I don't enslave Brad. And what I do is instead I come in at the end of the day and Brad's put his work to the side and I just take the fruit of his labor, right? I take what he's stored up. In effect, it's the same process, right? I haven't enslaved him per se. I'm not making him work. But at the same time, I have turned his life who he is, his time, the thing that really represents what you can do in life, your time, to my benefit. And I've, to- I've stolen it. I've taken it. And, I've, and, if, and it's an intangible good here, right? That he has put his time and his life and his work into. And that's for that purpose. So he could have those things. It make, it's, it's absolutely a part of him. And, it, and it, it is absolutely harming him. And we could get into, I mean, much more could be said about property. And in another episode, we will talk specifically more about property and about its implications. Because you can you can go from there and you can take that further into steps towards Marxism. And you can take that in different ways and steps towards private property and those things. 
whatever the case for this example here, it's, imp- it's enough to say your property is a reflection of your life. And to hurt someone's property or to take something of their property is akin to doing physical harm to them. It's using violence and force against them in ways that are going to hurt their life. Mm-hmm. And and as as Dan said, as I as I love to discuss philosophy, we could spend several hours breaking down the nuances and implications of the use of force, and and that would be a whole lot of fun for at least two of us. But <laughs> we're gonna just take these few examples and and build a foundation that we can work from, and hopefully we can build on that later piece by piece. Yeah. So let's recap the three examples real quick. So uh, there's there's the one where I tried to kill you. Obviously, you're justified in defending yourself and you're, you're justified. That's usually the word people use their defense, right? The second example was me saying things, right? I'm being annoying. Brad hits me. Obviously, that's not justified. There's a difference between words and a difference between violence here that everyone would agree with. Now, there are other kinds of words that we could get into and get into the nuances. For now, again, it's enough to see, it's enough to recognize that someone being annoying does not justify you hitting them. That would be an unjustified use of force. And then our third example of stealing. If you steal from someone, you are in fact taking from them in a way that's going to harm their life. It is an exercise in force. You're, you're forcefully taking their goods and it's, and you would be justified in responding to that theft with with force yourself. And in each of these examples, the point is that if someone is not applying force to you, right? Someone is not- Or about to not, apply force to you. We're about to, right? We could we could talk about an example of language where someone is threatening you, right? There's there's There are things that you can do that are not quite violence that so strongly suggest it and imply it and, and lead to it that they are treated differently. No, and that example um, would be very simple. If-, if if Dan came to me after he had attempted to steal from my brother on multiple occasions, right, and I kept stopping him, and he said, hey, I'm going to steal from your brother again tonight, but if you try and stop me, I will kill you and your brother. That is no longer, like that second example, that is no longer just words. That is a, is a statement of intent to use force against me that taken seriously is is in many ways the same as using force against me right cuz you don't have to wait for someone to use force against you yeah. you don't have to you don't have to wait till they punch you in the face uh, you you can be a step ahead of that <laughs> yeah you if someone pulls out a gun and points it at your face you don't have to wait until they pull the trigger for <laughs> them to be using force right and right. and once again those are those are nuances but they're also self-evident that build on these three basic ones, these three basic mm-hmm. examples. But the the principle that that we use, the underlying principle to decide if force is justified in any given situation is actually really simple, is that force is only justified as a response and in order to protect myself or an innocent. So whether whether I'm protecting myself or my brother or some other third party, it's it's only justified when it's used to protect against force. And that's the principle that that runs through each of these examples and many thousands more as you look at what is a self-evident truth that as you think about what it's okay for everyone to do, and as you ask 10,000 people what it's okay for someone to do over and over and over again, people will agree. And like Dan said, not every single person, but the vast majority will agree because it is self-evident. So that being said, as Dan's already pointed out, there are going to be some nuances to how we apply this principle. The principle itself is very simple. Force can only be used as protection as protection against force. We want to discuss that principle and some other qualifying principles. To say someone can justly use force against someone is not the same as saying they can justly use any degree of force against someone. It is justified to protect. When it is no longer needed to protect, it is no longer justified. That's a key aspect of of just use of force. It's it, it has a specific purpose that gives it moral authority. Once that purpose yeah. is solved, the moral authority is gone. Yeah, because you are really you're only justified 
in terms of this principle we're talking about, where you're only justified in using the force that is necessary to stop the threat. You know, we talked before, you know, whether Dan's trying to kill me or he's trying to hurt, you know, to steal from me, whatever's necessary to stop that is what's justified. And and it's interesting because this is most definitely a moral question and and it has a lot of moral aspects to it. But in this case, it depends on being practical because it, it depends on looking at a situation, analyzing it, and coming up with a practical solution. So here's an example. Let's let's say that that you're a police officer and you get a call about a naked crazy guy who's running down the street. And and you go out to the street and you find this naked crazy guy and he's just running around and he's crazy and he's naked. Unarmed, but crazy. And and you can see that this guy is most definitely a potential threat. To the people in the neighborhood. Just seeing him alone is going to scar some people. <laughs> right. But, he, you never know. He may jump on someone and bite him. He may go yeah, like. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we don't, go we don't on their know car or... the potential implications of, of the threat. But what we do know is that we have some time to deal with it. So, for example, if a police officer came and immediately shot the naked crazy guy, you can see how that would be unjust. Not because no force was necessary, but because that much force was unnecessary. That there were many other things that you could do. You know, for example, you could show up as a police officer and you could chase that man down. Or you could call in more officers and they could cut him off and stop him from from having an avenue of escape so that you could eventually arrest him. You know, there are options. There are things that you can do. And there's not even just one good thing that you could do. You know, there are many. There are many, you know, maybe you use some, you know, different forms of restraint and things like that. And depending on what that naked guy do does, depending on what that naked guy does, the threat level could change. You know, maybe the naked guy could be running along and then he picks up a pickaxe that's on the ground and charges the police officer. Well, now the scenario is completely different. But until he does something like that, the argument that that police officer has a right to use lethal force is simply not there. Right. And that's and that's an important distinction. Yeah, it is. It is a critical distinction that you have to make. And as you said, it can change. And part of that, as you said, it depends on a practical judgment and assessment of the threat. And it's why it's partially why we distinguish different things like intent when we're discussing crimes. Because a practical judgment is not not the same as a deliberate judgment. Like if a police officer shoots someone with the intent to kill them, it's different than if they shoot someone with the intent to neutralize a threat and different things like that. Those are, those are all aspects of these kind of laws and the judgments that go into these these calls and, and what, what people discuss when they do police training. It's about neutralizing the threat and it's about and, and to do that, you have to correctly assess the level of the threat. Now, this, this brings us to a, to a second point, and that's the, the question of punishment. Because people often conflate the question of justified use of force with the question of just punishment. Now, when I say conflate, what I mean is a word which takes two different ideas that are separate, unique ideas, and act or speak as if they're the same idea. And that's something we don't we don't want to do in this case because the justified use of force is all about what's necessary to stop the imminent threat. The threat that's going on right now in the short term is what justifies that force. Now, after that threat has been dealt with, there enters a second question, and that question is just punishment or what that person deserves. And that question is a very different question from the one we want to talk about in this episode. It is a very important question and one that shouldn't be overlooked. In fact, if we hadn't talked about what we're talking about now in this episode, we would have been talking about criminal justice and, and all of the stuff that goes along with that because it is such an important issue. And it's it's a complicated issue because there are a lot of different things that go into it. 
you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different words, you know, restoration, retribution, reformation. Those are all very different things that have very different implications. And yet when we talk about punishment, when we talk about, you know, sentencing for crimes, we usually talk about multiple of those and we don't distinguish them. And it's important that we do. It is, it is, especially since people often, when they're looking at specific examples of force and they're, they're asking, is this force justified? As you said, they conflate these and what they, and they say, it's okay that the police shot so-and-so because he deserved it. Yeah, because he was a criminal. And right. so, right. So, he was a drug so user. Was he was justified. whatever. Right. And so they say, thus, the, 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 the exercise of force in this scenario is justified. When those are actually entirely two different questions, the question of whether he needed to be shot there at that place at that time is a question of whether the, the violence is justified. It's, the, it's what we're looking at today. It the was about of, the imminent threat. Yeah. The question of does he deserve to die is a question of justice that deals with the long term and deals with the consequences of his actions. And, the, and we have an entire court system, right, and, and laws that try to navigate that, whether you think they do a, a good job or not, it is a separate question mm-hmm. than what should Absolutely. happen there on the scene as this person is doing something they should or shouldn't be doing. Absolutely. And it's very important because in so many of these police-involved shootings and, and these different things, everyone wants to know about the criminal record of the people yeah. who were shot. Yeah. And it's because they want to know if they deserved it. Yeah. They're... If they deserved it. And and the, the thing is, is being guilty of the crime or any crime does not justify a shooting ever. Now, being – because – and just to clarify, I'm not saying that no matter what you're doing – a shooting's not justified. That's definitely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what you're doing right then and the threat that it poses to to anyone who's there, whether it's an innocent bystander, the the shooter, or whoever, is what matters. It doesn't matter what that person has done before. It doesn't matter if that person is Al Capone or Mother Teresa. What matters <laughs> is what they're doing in that situation. Now, like Dan said, after the situation is over, whether they're Mother Teresa or Al Capone is going to matter a ton. It's the only thing that matters after. (laughs) Yeah, after. But in that moment, when you've got a situation where violence may or may not be necessary, what matters is the threat. Right. It's critically important. Yeah. Yeah. And if – Sorting those two questions out, it seems to be almost impossible if you read the news. Because <laughs> as you said, everyone wants to know if, if, if they deserved it. And, and that's a, that is a separate question from what, what conduct should have been done in the moment in the face of, of a threat or potential threat. So, so now we have a, a pretty clear idea of how this principle of force works. We've talked about some different ways that we can apply it. Now what we'd like to do is look at some particular cases that have that have happened over the past year. And and we're going to look at three cases and and discuss really how these principles are applied and what that means. So the first one is going to be George Floyd. I want to talk about that one because it's the one that started it all. We've mentioned it many times, but we've never actually talked about it. So George Floyd, sorry, I mean talking about these cases is 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 difficult sometimes because I think about the images that I've seen, the videos that I've seen, and it's difficult. So George Floyd was arrested on suspicion of using a counterfeit bill. So what happened is, is he goes to, to he goes and he purchases something at a store. The store thinks it's counterfeit. They call the police. He's in his SUV in the parking lot. The police go to the SUV and attempt to arrest him. And and as they attempt to arrest him, he starts freaking out. He doesn't threaten anyone. He doesn't have a weapon. And in fact, when the the uh, the neck hole is applied, he's at, he's lying face down on the ground, handcuffed. And that's when when the force that was used that ended up being lethal was used is when he's on the ground, face down, handcuffed, with three guys on top of him. Three police officers were on top of him, and the officer then used. As the three officers got on top of him, he used the neck hold. 
So those are the facts. And and this case is is very simple because there's a well the case is not simple. No case is ever simple. <laughs> it's relatively simple because it's is very short and there was video and photographic evidence of what happened. You know, you can watch and see what happened. And so so now we need to apply the principles. So lethal force was used by the police officers against a man who was not an imminent threat to anyone. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, whether or not he he was guilty of using a counterfeit bill has no bearing on whether or not that force was just. I don't care if if you know he had done thousands of counterfeit bills that that wouldn't affect whether or not what they did was just. And and so then the question becomes okay well he resisted arrest and assuming that assuming that first of all he is guilty of using the counterfeit bills which I don't know but assuming he was guilty even if he was guilty and he resists arrest when he resisted arrest he never threatened violence towards anyone no one was in danger of 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 getting of getting hurt or seriously hurt right by this man. It's not like it was him and one police officer who thought he was going to be overpowered. There were multiple police officers there and you had an individual who was not threatening them but was simply was simply having a hard time. Yeah, like I said he was freaking out is a good way to he describe it. He was freaking it. Out. he really was. He was freaking out. He didn't want to get in the car. He he was he was saying lots of different things about about him being sick and him getting not being able to breathe and all of this that was going on. And the response to that, as we talked about before with our earlier case, our hypothetical case, there are many different ways the police could have responded to this. And there are many reasonable things they could have done to address what they needed to do, their job, and the situation that was going on. And they didn't use any of those options. Right. Putting them on the ground may have been in the scope of those options, right? Uh, uh trying to find a way to calm him down trying to obviously it's part of their job they need to get him into that police car at some point here in the very near future right well no but that's the thing is they have they have all the time in the world they could have sat there for six hours with him <laughs> yeah, lying on no. the ground yeah by near future i mean yeah days is what i'm talking about here you're absolutely right that it's not like it's not like they have five this isn't the last helicopter out of vietnam here um <laughs> Which means that, that they can work through these things. As you said, he's not being a threat. And that's the most important part here in terms of judging whether of what the scope of options are that would be, that would be okay. And the fact that, as you said, the, the facts are that they applied the, the force that killed him, the guy who was kneeling on him, after he's on the ground and already subdued. Like there, there was no, not only was the not, not only was the threat minimal, the threat was non-existent at that point. Yeah, the point. threat had already been the neutralized. Threat had, yeah, it had already been handled. The, 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 the real threat that was there was when he wasn't handcuffed and he wasn't restrained in any way because then he could have done something. And they had already dealt with that without using lethal force, which was correct. You know, getting him handcuffed, getting him on the ground. And how they got him on the ground is up for debate as well, but right, it wasn't, right, right. they didn't use lethal force, right. which was good, obviously. Right. So there's in this good, case, better, and best in this scenario. Yeah, exactly. And then there's clearly wrong. And then there's <laughs> clearly wrong. And looking the at this case, clearly wrong. we can clearly say that, yeah, that it's, that it's unequivocally, the use of force here was not justified, was not justified. Easy to hang your hat on that. So the next, the next case is the case of Andrew Jacob priests in salt lake city utah and uh most people probably haven't heard about this one didn't receive quite as much media attention um it actually happened i don't know if you know this dan but it actually happened at the smith's that i used to shop at when i lived when i lived downtown really okay yeah so literally I know that place. on I... the sidewalk next to the next to next to that smith's yeah we shopped there too yeah yeah that's no, crazy. I, I, I shopped there for maybe two three years that's crazy so police were called after two men started fighting in a local Smith's. The police show up a few minutes later and the men are walking on the sidewalk. So there's two men walking next to each other. So the police know that there was an altercation. Something may have been taken from the store 
And so, so at least a couple, you know, a crime or two had been committed. And so the police needed to figure out what was going on and potentially arrest one or both of them, right? The police show up and, and ask the men to stop who are walking. As they get there, they see that one of those two men is holding a knife in his hand. Just down by his side, he's holding a knife. As soon as the police start talking to the two men, he grabs the guy, the other guy, grabs the knife and holds it up to his throat and starts backing away from the police officers with the knife to the other guy's throat. And then after about seven, eight, nine, ten seconds of yelling at the man to lower the knife, to drop it or he will be shot, the police open fire on the man with the knife and kill him, shooting him seven times, and the other, the other, uh, the other man was unharmed. This case is another one that, like all cases, is not is not simple. There, there are a lot of factors, and, and there are still factors that we don't know. This happened relatively recently. I think it was just a few weeks ago. And so not all the details are known yet, but I've watched the video and, and from the things that I've, I've seen, I can, I can make some, I can make some deductions. Number one, the, the, the imminent threat of violence was most definitely there. Andrew Jacob Priest had a knife and not only did he have a knife and was within range of someone he could potentially use it on by putting it up to that man's throat, as we talked about earlier about threat, he clearly implied, and he clearly, I mean, more than implied, suggested <laughs> that he was going to kill someone. And a clearer gesture does not exist. A, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's basically a universal signal of of I'm going to kill someone now. And and I know you know people will look at this video. And I'm sure some people will argue that the police should have taken longer to negotiate with the guy. And they may have been able to convince him to drop the knife without shooting him. And people will also argue that he wouldn't have actually used the knife, right? And, and, and here's the thing. Is I'd say there's a decent percentage chance that he never would have used that knife. That he was just bluffing. There's also a very decent chance that if the police had had taken longer, had taken minutes or hours to, to negotiate with him, he would have dropped the knife, right? And surrendered. Here's the thing. And this is where we come down to, to, to what Dan said about practical analysis. In this situation, the police have no idea who this man is. They don't, they don't know his name. They don't know what he's doing there and what his motivations are. All they know is that an unknown man has grabbed another unknown man and is threatening to kill him right here and right now. And, and the police officer's job is to protect the innocent. Right. At that point, at that point, as you're saying that, who Jacob Priest is, Andrew Jacob Priest, does not matter. Because what he is, whatever else he is, he's a threat to this man's life. And that's the way they have to think of it. And so whether or not they could have done something else in the hypothetical, I'm confident in saying that based on the principles we have discussed, the principle of justified use of force is only justified when it's to protect yourself or an innocent against an imminent threat of force and that, that, th and that your force has to be necessary in order to prevent that force, then what the police did in this case was justified. Because as far as they knew, it was clearly necessary to ensure that he didn't hurt someone with lethal force. Not just hurt someone, but kill someone. Right. It guaranteed it. Mm-hmm. And you could, I mean, I, I suppose you could argue that, that it may have increased the odds that he was going to you know, cut his throat. But if the police officers have their guns drawn, which they, they do, right? And they're looking at someone with a knife to their throat, the, the bullet's just faster. It's, it's not complicated math or anything. <laughs> You're shooting him was not actually putting. 
And and I think part of the reason that people are, are shocked by that is that in the movies, whenever there's a hostage situation, the good guys will always sit there and negotiate with the bad guys. In reality, that only happens when the good guys don't have line of sight on the bad guys. Anytime that the bad guy is in plain view, I mean, I mean, typically, that's how most police departments are trained. That's how the military is trained. That's, I mean, I've, I've been to, I've been to a front site in Nevada and taken a gun training course and they were very clear about it. They're like, if you lower your weapon because someone's threatening someone else, all you're doing is ensuring that you both get killed. The only thing that makes sense in order to protect life is to take the shot when someone's displaying that willingness to use violence. Right, right. It's the, it's the only safe option in a lot of ways. So so as we discussed, there there's a scope of actions they could take. And as you said, there's a good chance that other things would have worked. But is this justified in the sense that is it one of the options on the table here in this case? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the options that, that you can clearly right. demonstrate which, was necessary to yeah. ensure. Yeah, which which morally justifies it. Then you could get into a discussion of what is the best option. You know, did they read the man right? Did they all those? That's a separate question, right? That's a practical. That's that's part of the practical analysis. And you can always do more to try and improve the practical analysis of the group. But in terms of moral justification, absolutely, that was that was an acceptable option on the table in response to that threat, in response to that use of force. At yeah, that time. Because because obviously that's not the best outcome. The best outcome right. is Through. no one gets hurt and everyone's wa- walks yeah, away. Yeah, absolutely. But but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about best outcomes. We're talking about when is force justified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we want to make that. We want to. We. I'm glad you clarified that, Dan. That we're not saying that no matter what they should have shot the guy. We're not saying that. Right. Right. We're saying that that's, that is a morally acceptable option on the table in those circumstances. And, uh, is, and I'm glad that you brought up outcomes because if you, if you're going to hold the police accountable for not having the best outcome in any situation, you're going to be really disappointed all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Cause that's, you can't do that to anybody. I mean, we're, we're people, yeah. unfortunately. Um, and the other, the other thing I just wanted to point out in that example is that, that whether, a lot of people will say uh, seven times was excessive. Shooting him seven times, like surely one would have been enough. And again, part of that is movie training, right? In the movie, the, the guy would have shot the knife out of his hand, right? <laughs> they would have shot his <laughs> knife in. And that's, and that's just, it's beyond the expectations of what you can actually do in real life. And here's how it works. Once you've made that call and you've said this man is a threat and the, what we're going to do is we're going to make the, we're going to neutralize that threat as effectively as possible. You're not shooting to kill, but you're shooting to neutralize that threat. And to do that, you aim center mass and you fire until the threat is no longer a threat, right? That sounds, that sounds in a terrible way that objectifies the person in some way, right? But it's also the only solution because often one shot won't do it. Often two shots won't do it. You can't shoot. <laughs> I heard somebody describe it. It's kind of well put. I thought it was kind of funny. You can't shoot and then check, right? Mm-hmm. Is this guy still capable of stabbing him with the knife? Oh, yeah, he did. No. Yep, he's, he can still stab him with the knife. We just <laughs> we see. Yeah, exactly. You, you shoot until you're sure. And that's often going to require more than one shot. That's, that's always going to require more than one shot. You don't just take one shot. Maybe you're a seal sniper and the guy, <laughs> something, but anyone else, right? You're, you're going to take more than one shot. Yeah. In almost any circumstance that justifies the first shot, it's going to justify whatever's necessary in that moment to neutralize the threat. To make sure those shots have been effective, right? And yeah. that's going to be, that's going to require several shots. You can, those are going to be really, really quick, one after the other. Yeah. I mean, in the video, I mean, it's like, it's one second, you know, yeah. that they're firing. It's not like they're firing for, spread out no it's all right then right away yeah so don't don't get caught up in the quantity of the shots as brad said if the first shot was justified the following shots are and they're going to be it's going to be essentially one act now we're going to we're going to get into the the event that's happening live those those examples we gave we picked because they were a little clearer and we're going to get into the current event that has kenosha the news on fire and lit kenosha quite literally on fire in some parts kenosha Started a protest started happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a town of about a hundred thousand people, just a short time ago after the killing of Jacob Blake. 
We're not going to discuss that instant. What we want to discuss is the one that followed with Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, Kyle Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old boy. He went to Wisconsin deliberately armed to defend stores. There are lots of groups of people, if this seems like an oddity to you, it, it is odd that he's 17. It's not odd that this happened. This happens in a lot of cases. I Years ago, I remember reading about a riot where the, a group called the Oath Keepers showed up. They were ex-military men um, who, who believed in their oaths to serve and protect that they had made in the military and were carrying on those things. And so they had gone to it. They'd gone to an an immigrant quarter of a town that was having a lot of riots and they uh, they offered to protect those stores and they stood on top of the buildings. And so at one point, a, a, a group of people that were throwing fire and different things, uh, destroying public, destroying property, rounded the corner, came to that neighborhood, saw these guys on the roofs and decided they'd better go to a different part of town and did. And they made the right call. The Oath Keepers are pretty, pretty intense. This Kyle was part of a, I guess, some kind of militia group. Uh, sometimes people refer to these groups as militia groups. They're people who've taken it upon themselves to privately train and, and to be prepared. We don't want to defend or attack these groups in this particular episode. Um, at least observe that they are within their rights in most states to do such things. Yeah, these um, in in lots of Hollywood movies, militia groups are portrayed in a very particular way. They are up <laughs> in the, the mountains. They are the, up in the mountains. Yeah. They have a chain link fence around their compound. They <laughs> spout incredibly Hitler-esque. Incredibly, yeah, incredibly strong language about how terrible the government is and blah blah blah. <laughs> and they are always currently working on some kind of bomb that they're going to use to blow up a public building. That is how every militia works. It's actually it's actually one of the rules in order to create a militia. You have to follow that formula or you will not be shown on 24 or any other TV show. Yeah, it's true. It turns out in real life most people are just not quite as exciting. And as, and the as thing the that people never talk about shows. is that if that was actually what was going on, those groups would be shut down on a very regular basis. (laughs) Instead, there are thousands of groups that call themselves militias, and they are just groups of people who who have different beliefs. Every single one of them is different. (laughs) They're as varied as any other groups. Right, and some of them offer really on-point gun training and different things like that, different different skill sets that they'll teach and help people because they're they're concerned about particular things, yeah. Those groups aside, we're going to go through the timeline of what happened. Now, the evidence we have for that first shooting is not complete. We have video of Kyle running across an auto shop parking lot, apparently being chased by a person with a red shirt. Soon thereafter, very soon thereafter, you hear the gunshots going off. There's no video that we have access to of what happens in that moment, but you hear a gunshot going off. And a witness told investigators that Rittenhouse shot the man when he grabbed for Rittenhouse's gun. So that's that's basically all the information we have for the first shooting. Yeah, it's very the little. The second shooting takes place very soon thereafter, about a minute after, where, and this one is caught on video, where you can see Rittenhouse running down a street, trips, and and at least two men approach him. And it appears that they're trying to attack and or disarm him. One of those men has a skateboard and the other one appears to have a handgun. The man with the skateboard is is trying to hit Kyle Rittenhouse. He gets shot and stumbles away. The other man is hit in the arm as he approaches him with his gun. And then he retreats as well. Rittenhouse then gets up and backs away down the street and then leaves. Yeah, one slight amendment that there were a lot of people chasing him. Those were the two that got to him. Yeah. Yeah. There were more people there. They flee when the shots are fired. So those those are the core facts of what happened with these shootings. There are a lot of other facts of things that happened that to that that happened that night. And if you read most of the reports about what happened that night, they actually focus on those other facts. You know, I think you know, they focus on things like interviews and water bottles and <laughs> and what the police were doing. And 
And some of those questions are important in terms of how the evening went, how the evening was handled. Those questions are relevant. The question of whether or not this shooting was justified has nothing to do with those things. And so we're not going to even worry about those things right now. We're just going to focus on these two shootings, these two events, and what happened. And I want to talk about the second one first because the second one's easier. The second one, we have more evidence. We have the video. For the sake of consistency, we'll start with number two. (laughs) He's being chased by a group of people. One of them armed with a skateboard, of all things. The other one armed with, apparently, with a handgun, which actually, you know, Obviously, that's on the scale of things. The handgun is what's important. The skateboard's not. But he does, in fact, get hit by that skateboard, which is why it's important. He trips and he falls. Two people are standing over him, right? Two people are coming at him. He's down on the ground. He fires. Several rounds hits both of them. This this event looks defensive, right? It looks like he is being attacked. It looks like these people are chasing him, not because they want to ask him how his day has been, right? That would be be a silly assumption. His life looks immediately in danger. This shooting looks justified. In terms of what we discussed before, in terms of an imminent threat to his life and limb, if, if you're being attacked by multiple people and two of those people are actively attacking you and one of them is armed... You know, there is there is no reason for him not to think that he's going to be killed. You know what I mean? There is strong evidence as far as he can see that his life is in grave danger. Right. And so using lethal force as a response to that is justified in terms of what we have talked about. Right. Even if they didn't have any weapons at all, the sheer numbers. And I mean, he's fleeing. He's not trying to stay there with them, right? He's not on their yeah, property or anything like that. he's not standing his ground. Yeah, he's fleeing and they're chasing him. And the sheer numbers means that his life is in imminent danger. Um, just the way the way it is. But the problem with, with looking at that second shooting, as clear as it is, is that whether or not he's morally justified there really depends in a big way on the first shooting, right? Because these people are chasing him. Or they sh- Part of why they're chasing him is because of the first shooting. Yeah, the primary reason they're chasing him is because of the first shooting. Right. Somebody there identifies him as the the, the the shooter in that in the first shooting, hence the chase, hence the response. And now he doesn't have to that that doesn't mean if the first shooting wasn't justified that he needed to just, you know, lay down and let them No, him. and 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 that's where that discussion becomes interesting because people will argue and people have argued that that the 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 crowd was justified in attacking him because he had just killed someone yeah. and and there there are a couple of interesting questions there the first question is are the people attacking him did they see him attack someone or did they just hear that he attacked someone and now they're going to and now they're going to attack him and the question becomes are they attacking him in order to neutralize the threat or are they attacking him because he deserves it. Are they trying to seek punitive justice? Right, right. Are they are they looking for punishment right here and rather than addressing a threat? Because he's he's running away. He doesn't look like a threat there. In fact, he looks like he's trying not to – like he's doing what he can not to have to pull the trigger. Uh-huh. And and so, so like I said, you can go back and forth on that and it does become a nuanced discussion because – Because there is a question of, is he a potential threat continuing? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. that comes down to a question of why they did what they did. We need to look at why Rittenhouse did what he did. Right, right. And and so for him, it's much more clear cut. You know what I mean? Their motivations actually can make sense and seem justifiable and may be justified. Because I wasn't there. I didn't know. I can't feel what was happening, right? And so they – they may have been justified in their concern that he's going to shoot someone else and so they have to disarm him and disarm him now, right? right. That makes sense. Right. But for Kyle, who's actively running away, so here's a man who's actively running away from people and as far as he knows, they're trying to kill him and he trips and they immediately start attacking him. That becomes a lot more clear that for him, the the real the only real option to ensure his safety and to prevent this imminent threat was to use force. Right. And therefore, it's justified. Right. 
That's the second shooting. That's the second shooting. As you said, I just want to say one quick thing. From the perspective of the group chasing him, as you said, there there may be some justification for them thinking that he's a threat that needs to be stopped, um, in which case it becomes a, a practical analysis, right? Do you Do you chase him? And that seems, the fact that they were chasing him seems in, in the practical aspect to be, well, at least extraordinarily dangerous. Because at any moment, he can turn and he can shoot into that crowd. And then what happens? And that's a, that's a, that's a concern, a separate concern, as you said. We want to look at the things that are specifically from his perspective to find out if he was justified in what he did. And because he's going to be the one that's on trial. So we're going to go back to the first shooting. As we indicated, the first shooting in a lot of ways colors what happened, you know, who, who was justified in that second moment. And who is right in their assessment of the practical threat in a, and in the ongoing safety question and, and in the actions they took preceding it. And the first shooting is difficult because of the, the limited evidence we have. Yeah, the lack of information. Right. We have one eyewitness of the event. We have evidence in the camera that's pretty strong that he was being chased again, right? If you're being chased and you have a gun and the other person doesn't, I mean, you ought to assume... This is, this is a factor that people don't often consider in relation to the police. If you have a gun in play in a physical altercation, you have to assume the worst. This is not like some, some fight in the public, you know, on the, some street fight or something like that where there's, where you're, you're pretty sure you're not going to die. There's a fight here. It's going to be over his gun and mm-hmm. it's going to be over who has the power to shoot the other person. Yeah, and that's and that's a thing that people like you said people forget about is that you you assume if one guy has a gun and the other guy is unarmed that the unarmed guy can't kill the armed guy and therefore the armed guy does not have a right to shoot the unarmed guy. But as Dan's saying, it's about the gun and as soon as that unarmed guy goes for the armed guy's gun, the implication is well, not the implication. The What's happening is that unarmed guy wants to have the power to decide who lives and who dies. And he wants to take that power away from the other guy. And so we don't know why he's doing that. But we do know that if, if, and this is, this is a lot of ifs, if the eyewitness is correct in what he saw and he saw everything accurately and that guy was trying to take away his gun, then there is a strong implication as far as as Rittenhouse knows that he's going to use that gun on Rittenhouse. Now, like I said, there are there are two big ifs. The first if is if the eyewitness saw what he says he saw and he saw it accurately. If he didn't, then it changes because if he saw something different, then we don't know what he saw, so we can't discuss it. The other question is what started the altercation in the first place? So, for example, if Kyle Rittenhouse was minding his own business and a man starts heckling him and then says, I'm going and then starts threatening him. And so Kyle Rittenhouse starts running away and then that man chases him and tries to take his gun. Then Kyle Rittenhouse, as far as he knows, is under threat of life and limb and is justified in using force. Right. And the court court will see it that way if that's what ended up happening. If that's what ended up happening. Now, let's say that Kyle Rittenhouse did it swamped. Kyle Rittenhouse has the gun and he threatens the unarmed man. And because of those threats and that unarmed man's being safety being questioned, the unarmed man is now trying to take the gun away from, from Rittenhouse in order to defend himself. Now, the first shooting is no longer justified, and in many ways, that second shooting is at least less justified because of that change. And 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 as far as in a moral sense, it's definitely not justified. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. That second shooting is an interesting question. If the first is not justified, because in a way, he doesn't you could argue that he doesn't deserve to be killed by a mob because <laughs> that, that's what you said. That's, that's kind of the mentality of the, of the group chasing him could be justice. And we're going to enforce justice now, not we're going to neutralize a threat. Maybe that's a part of it too, but part of it could be the question of actual retributive justice. Right. And, uh, and those are just, there's a reason that you, 
If you can, you delay, and so a court and a third party that is disinterested can judge disputes, right? You don't want to. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the difference between vengeance and between justice, right? Now, the two of them can end up being the same thing in practice, but the incentives of vengeance are such that it's better to defer it to a third party if you can, and to let a third party judge between you and other people, because obviously you're not an unbiased party. You have a, <laughs> you have biases that cloud your judgment. But you're right about the, the, the concept of, well, if Kyle is misusing this weapon, then and is a threat to the safety of other people, then the judgment to try and take it from him can be a moral one and can be justified. And it depends entirely on events that we have either one witness for and perhaps which have other events prior to that we don't have information about. Yeah, that we, we simply don't have information. We don't know. Kyle was going to protect a business. He was going to be at a business, private property, protecting it how did he end up running down a street with somebody chasing him right there's there's some something there's happened questions there here yeah that could change how you should perceive each event after and that will change the one after that mm-hmm. and and it's an interesting it's interesting to discuss a case where we don't have a clear takeaway <laughs> but but it's important to discuss it because the scary thing is that Everyone else has a takeaway. <laughs> right. Is that, is that we we're seem over too here hesitant saying, to draw conclusions? It's because we're, we're, we're over here saying conclusively that you, we cannot say whether or not Rittenhouse was justified. You know what I mean? We cannot say because we don't know. Yeah. Because these key details are missing. Yeah. We can say if statements. Yeah. And we have said if statements. If this, then this. If this happened, if there was threat against him, he's justified. If there wasn't, or in fact, he was the one threatening first, then he's not justified. But we don't know those details because no one knows those details. Well, not no one. Right. So obviously, some people know those details. Right. But it'll the be majority, interesting to see you know, what, the how public that at large does not know those details. And so the fact that the public at large has decided, a vast majority of the population has decided that, yes, he is not only guilty, he is evil. And then a good majority of the population, I said majority, a good chunk of the population on either side, the other chunk of the population has decided that not only was he justified, but he was actually a hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the reason we're talking about this is because you, we can't, our country has become so politicized that it is no longer about truth. And it is no longer about right and wrong. It is about us versus them. And this is a perfect case. It's almost a case study in how that is happening. Yeah. Where where this this shooting is not about whether or not he was right. It's about whether or not he's on our side. Ah, oh, you put that very succinctly and it was painful. You, I, I agree with what you said 100%. If... If the facts as we presented them portray the whole story and that what happened with him being chased was literally someone was aggressively after him and he ran rather than stand his ground, which he didn't have to, and he shot because he was protecting his gun, and then he shot into the crowd because he was uh, being attacked by them and they were threatening his life, then he's justified. But those are those are a lot of ifs that depend on at best, one witness here, one witness testimony about that guy chasing him trying to take his gun. And again, we don't have any details about how he ended up running from him in the first place. And these are not just incidental facts. They, they are the facts upon which applying clear principles would depend upon. And so step one, get clear principles, because if you don't have clear principles, you're going to be moved by the political rhetoric. They can the emotional appeals, the the us versus them will get you if you don't have clear lines. Get clear lines. Step two, if you can't apply those clear lines, wait. <laughs> don't jump to conclusions. Yeah, wait until you have all the facts. Wait until you have the information. If you don't have information, try and find out more. Yeah. You know, there is information to be found. You know, we found, you know, a lot of evidence. We don't have all the evidence, but we were able to find quite a bit. Yeah. There are times where you don't have the time to to get a complete picture. 
and you make the best decision you can and you and you need your principles then more than ever. Mm-hmm. There are times where you don't have to make a judgment. This is one of those. Like what happened there? People across the world are passing judgment on what happened there. And it's and it's and they don't need to. They don't need to. There's no urgency. Right, there's no urgency you can wait. There are there there's almost guaranteed to be witnesses who did not come forward immediately. There's almost guaranteed to be uh, footage that may or may that may contribute to the bigger picture that isn't publicly available. Those things are going to come out over the course of the case, right? Those are that's when you will be able to see have a better picture of whether this is justified and make a make as final a conclusion as we're able to make. Because this this case is just not as obvious as the ones we gave before, where you have video footage of the whole event, you have a clear threat, and you have a clear absence of a threat. Here. Not that simple. No, and 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 that's really our takeaway for this episode is is don't get caught up in the us versus them mentality of party politics. Don't get caught up in in the rhetoric, in the the impassioned defenses or accusations. Instead, figure out what principles you believe in. Stick to those principles. Bring those principles up whenever you look at issues, and not yeah. just this issue, but any issue, whether it's it's political, personal, or whatever. Use those principles. Take the time to find the information, and then make a decision. And that's something right. that we we need to do, especially as we're looking at politics over and over and over again, in order to make the right decisions. Right. Because that's what that's what this country needs: is people who are thinking clearly. And making decisions based off of principles and facts instead of passion and demagoguery. Right. And an example like this can really help you refine your principles. You, you'll, there are conflicts at play here. You know, two groups that are neither of them are police, neither of them are criminals per se, right? That are, yeah. that, that can really help you think through these ideas and know where you stand if you will look at them and not oversimplify it, which is what, which is what people are doing. They're, they have, they don't have principles. They have assumptions and those assumptions will, they will not let them be challenged. And it's a, it's a shame. These, this, this would be an interesting opportunity for conversation that is instead us versus them. Thank you for listening. And, and don't forget to, to, uh, to email us or to comment on our, on our Facebook page or on the Podbean app and let us know other issues and other things that you'd like us to talk about. And tune in next week. Thank you.